Hello, everyone, and welcome to a bonus edition of the podcast. Instead of talking about Kate Blanchett, I am putting on my other hat as a film critic and talking about 30-something movies that I saw at Sundance this year, all of them on my couch, some of them on my computer or laptop, and some on my TV. And joining me in this conversation, I am very excited to welcome to the podcast for the first time a friend who I actually met at Sundance three years ago at a party. Even though we both <laughs> live in New York, we met on the slopes of Park City. Please welcome to the podcast, the founder and editor-in-chief of Media Versity Reviews, Lee Lai. Hi, Lee. Hi, Madonna. Oh, are you? I'm doing good. So Sundance ended like a week ago now, um, or is it more? Who knows what time is. <laughs> right. So do you feel like you've recovered from watching, I don't know, six movies a day for five, six days in a row? It really is that, isn't it? Six to seven movies a day. It's mind numbing. And given about a week to recover, I'm finally feeling like I have some brain cells back again. Yes, me too. It was it was kind of tough. I have to say one of the things I really liked about the experience itself um, it's just, it was so easy, you know, you, you save the movies you want to watch and you click and you watch them. For the most part, I didn't have any issues with their online experience. They seem to have figured it out. I totally agree. I feel like they do a really good job of the virtual experience. So let's check the pulse on the Sundance movies. We've both watched around 30 movies. Um, we've, some of, we've watched some of the same movies and some movies we... You know, I watched some that you didn't and vice versa. But overall, what was your impression of the selection this year? I don't want to be a negative Nancy, but <laughs> uh, I was I was not super impressed with the programming overall. There were a few hits that I enjoyed, but it was a lot of slogging. I felt like when I was watching the movies and being like, OK, all right, I watched it. Might not remember it a week from now. Yeah. I think I felt the same way. I felt there was a lot of good ideas, of kernels of ideas, but a lot of the movies were kind of a slog to go through um, just because those ideas don't manifest in ways that are interesting or even when you have a good idea, then it sort of, the execution is just not there. Um, but we f before we get to all the things that we didn't like, which we will get to, because I think people like that. Um, let's start by some <laughs> some favorites. Um, why don't you start, Lee? Tell us um, one of your favorite films that you watched. Okay, so I, I was really happy to know that my most anticipated movie, which was After Yang by Kogunada, or after, I should pronounce it the right way, After Yang, if you're going to do it in the Chinese way. Um, so I was super excited about it because I'm a huge Columbus fangirl with <laughs> that oh, 2017 me, movie. Me too. I love Columbus so much. Yeah. So I had really high expectations going in and I was kind of amazed that they were actually met because my expectations were so high. So I loved After Young and that kind of, for me, recouped the entire festival. And then after that, I think what I found myself drawn towards were films that had high production values. So that would be Living by mm -hmm. Oliver Hermanis and good luck to you, Leo Grand. So those I felt like were just really clean, polished ideas and enjoyable to watch. Yeah. 
So after Young, um, did I say it correctly? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is sort of a futuristic story. Colin Farrell and Jodie Smith-Turner are a couple who adopted a Chinese um, girl as their daughter, and they um, get a robot of Chinese ancestry. Is that the story? Um, right. Right. It's like a sci-fi story. So some kind of an AI, you know, humanoid robot. Mm-hmm. And then the robot sort of the movie starts when the robot malfunctions and sort of the family is trying because he is a member of the family. So they're trying to fix him. And when in and in that narrative, they sort of tell us um, lots of wonderful movie, lots of wonderful things about the family and how Yang came to them and how he became part of their family. I loved it, too. I thought it was um, slow is not the right word, but it was sort of like deliberate. And it's it sort of held back a lot and it didn't give you everything um, uh, yeah. immediately, which I kind of liked. Yeah, that was exactly my uh, reaction to it after the film was I loved how much negative space there is in the film. There are so many unsaid things and it really requires the viewer to be active and engaged to fill in all those words that are unsaid or there is you know one translation towards the end of the film or one one spoken word of um, line of Chinese that's spoken and not translated. Mm-hmm. And there's all of these gaps that are just missing. Um, and, but if you pay attention, you can fill them in yourself and it's so beautiful. Yeah. And it has, I think maybe one of the best opening sequences. Of, oh my God. <laughs> not just of Sundance, like of the year of the decade. It's so much fun. There's, oh it's a dance sequence, basically the every character uh, who appears in the movie is dancing in this dance sequence. It was one of those things that I watched. And then you, you sometimes gives you five hours to watch the film. And the movies are usually an hour and a half, two hours. I went back before my five, five hours ended to just watch the dance sequence. It was so much fun. <laughs> it's true. Oh my God. It's so much fun. And After Young was the only movie that I I watched twice in the same day. Oh, wow. I, okay. I, I really liked it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, my favorite part of it was the monologue that Colin Farrell delivers about tea as a tea drinker and somebody who drinks tea all the time and loves tea. It means though, like, even if you don't love tea, like, this could be about just whatever it is that you have this emotional connection to. And so, in this movie, was this monologue about what tea means to him. And I, I found myself tearing up. I really love that scene. I think it's one of my favorite scenes of all the movies at Sundance. It's just so well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a lot to love in there. I again, I watched it twice in a row. So for me, there was every every ten minutes, or there was some kind of high, low, high, low that I just that just kept me going forward all the way through the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after Yang um, is uh, sums up from both of us. Um, I sort of liked to to the point that I was making earlier. Like a lot of movies had good ideas but didn't deliver on them. I think two movies that I sort of found cohesive, um, complete visions are Nanny, which won the Grand Jury Prize by Nikayata Jusu, and Chacha Real Smooth by Cooper Rafe, which was the award, was the audience award winner. So I think the awards went to the right movies. I, I don't think you've seen Nanny, but um, I'll just tell our listeners briefly about it. So Nanny is a story about an immigrant from Senegal who comes to New York and works as a nanny, and she has left her um, younger child there uh, back in Senegal and she works for this white family 
What I loved about it is that the director really had a complete vision. She got so much right. She brought in elements of magical realism and horror elements to sort of vis- visualize the alienation and longing that an immigrant woman feels when she, f- for having left her child behind. And she brought in um, elements of African folk tales to this story that is very modern. And at the same time, there was this relationship to water. The woman is always, you know, dreaming of drowning. I just visually, I thought it was stunning. It was one of the only movies that I was like, oh, I wish I was at the Echoes to see this in a big screen. Um, I just thought it was a complete vision. I think narratively, sometimes it is doesn't cohere 100%, but just it's as a vision, I thought it was really complete. And it is a director that I think is going to have a big career ahead of her. So I have a question for you, Matata. When I was reading what the summary of Nanny was, it had mo- it had elements that reminded me of Atlantics, which I know mm-hmm. you really loved. Yeah. So can you share a little bit about how that compares? I think there is a lot of similar scenes, like they're both about immigrants um, and they're both have this relationship with water, like water plays a big um, part in those movies. I think in Atlantics, it was, you know, they left on the water on the boat and sort of died in the water. And so the water was this big element in here. Um, the main character in Nanny, she dreams of drowning all the time. It's, and this is sort of a dream that comes to her because she's always thinking about her son that she left behind. And she's afraid that she's not going to see him again. And sort of she's always dreaming of, of drowning. Um, and as someone, you know, I'm an immigrant myself and I left Sudan a long time ago. And even, you know, I don't dream of drowning, but I do get these dreams where I dream of our house back in Khartoum. And you sort of like, you know, I wake up in the middle of the night really upset. So I get it. There is this thing, there is this longing that you feel. Um, you know, I didn't leave a child behind, but, you know, you you leave people you love, you leave memories. And all of these things sort of just like, I think it was visualized so well in Nani. And that's, I think, why I sort of found a connection with it and just found it a complete vision. I wish I'd talked to you during the festival because that sold me. And now I'm like, oh, and now I want to watch it. (laughs) Yes. And hopefully we haven't heard yet, but I think it won the Grand Jury Prize. So I think somebody will buy it and hopefully we will see it um, soon. Um, The other film I really liked, and I think you've seen it too, is Cha-Cha Real Smooth by Cooper Rave. Um, And this is sort of like, it's, 100% 100% away from Nanny. I think both of them are complete complete visions, but this one is more in, in, in its narrative. Uh, visually, it's kind of just looks like a lot of other Sundance rom-coms. Um, but I just thought the story of it was complete. It was charming. It was heart-tugging. Um, um, so it's a story about um, this guy, a very young guy who just left college and is sort of um, doesn't know what he wants to do with his life and he becomes um what do, what what do they call them the people who start parties um he's, is there i don't know the professional term for it but i know tiffany haddish was one too <laughs> yes so he basically gets the crowd going at parties and in this sort of like it's it's in the suburbs of new jersey he just goes to a lot of bat mitzvahs with his uh, and bar mitzvahs with his younger brother who's still in middle school and sort of gets his friend dancing and whatever. And then he meets Dakota Johnson, who is, who has um, a daughter who is also goes to the same school. And she's an older woman, although not by much. 
Um, but he sort of falls in love with her and she is unattainable to him, but also she has a relationship. And what I liked about the movie is that it really sort of was um, kind and generous to all of its characters. Like there was no villain. There is even, you know, uh, Dakota Johnson's boyfriend is even presented as at the beginning as somebody maybe a little rigid, but by the end, you sort of like understand him completely. And like, so it was generous in um, drawing all of its characters. Right. I feel like it's this halo effect of Ted Lasso where, you know, people just, the real world is so unkind. (laughs) It's really, it's been nice to disappear into a lot of media that is just a little bit sweet. So I did, I do feel like Chacha Real Smooth fell into that need that a lot of viewers are looking for right now, which is to feel like you're going to put on the TV and just pull a warm blanket over you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Without being cheesy. Cause I do think Chacha Real Smooth had, you know, some edge some teeth to it. Um, Mm -hmm. And it just makes it, uh, it, it, it was the full package. I agree with that. Yes. And I agree. I agree with you when you said it wasn't cheesy, because the thing about these movies, like when you when you describe a movie as a Sundance rom-com, everybody's going to think it's sentimental. But I think it's sort of of somehow it avoids that. And that's because I think the script is so good at giving us a whole character instead of just, you know, archetypes. And I think one of the things that I really love, I think people at the at the festival, we're talking about Dakota Johnson, who plays this unattainable object of desire, who's aloof at times, approachable at others. And, you know, she had another movie, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And so there was a lot of talk about Dakota Johnson. But what I really loved in Chacha Real Smooth is Leslie Mann, who plays the main character's mother. And um, she's somebody who um, who had some mental issues when she was younger and raising her kids alone. And she's now in this um, relationship with another man who's not their father and and they kind of hate him. But the story is so generous that you sort of discovered at the end why this new husband is so good to her and why her life is better. And at the end, there is this very nice sort of coda between the main character and his mother. And it's just such a love letter to... Um, women who raise their kids alone despite a lot of um, adversity. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like you touched on one thing that I saw as a thread throughout. So Nancy and I don't mean to digress in case this is coming up later. No, please go um, ahead. Yeah. But I like that you mentioned Leslie Mann because I I hadn't really been thinking about the family angle of Chacha Real Smooth, but that is something I saw a lot of at this year's festival where uh, stories about families that start off estranged and the story arc is about them coming together and understanding each other by the end of the film. So you saw that in After Young, you saw that in Chacha Real Smooth. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just, there's a bunch of others like um, Jesse Eisenberg's When You Finish Saving the World. That was about a son and a mother who are start off and they feel like they're polar opposites. And by the end, they come together. So I don't know, do you feel like you saw a lot of family stories kind of putting you on the spot? Uh, I mean, now that you mentioned all these, yes, um, because you mentioned it. <laughs> I didn't, I really didn't put these movies together, but you are right. These are all about uh, families trying to connect or reconnect. Um, I'm living as well, actually. Yes. And living, living is one of my favorites. Um Living by Oliver Hermanus, um, which has a wonderful, wonderful performance by Bill Nye at the center of it. And it's uh, it's a remake of a Kuru, the Kurosawa movie. And it's about a British civil servant in the 50s 
who discovers that he has a terminal cancer and sort of what he does in the last months of his life. And he is trying to connect, but he's with his family and with his colleagues at work, but he is also trying to leave a legacy. And I think the way they dramatized that was so wonderful. Um, it's one of those movies that I think people are just going to love and cry and everybody's going to fall in love with Bill Nye in it. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. And then my hook for that film, it wasn't on my initial list of what I was planning to watch, but then I noticed that it was the screenplay was written by British Japanese novelist Kazuo Ishiguro. So he's written books like... Um... Never Let Me Go. <laughs> yes, that's his most famous one. And then recently, Clara and the Sun, which I loved that novel so much. So that was my entry point was, oh, it's it's written by Kazuo Ishiguro. So and I checked it out and it absolutely felt like a Kazuo Ishiguro film to me or story because he has an older book called Remains of the Day. Mm. And it's also about a very British story about an older gentleman who's reflecting on his life. Yes. <laughs> so if anyone ever wants to do a book film combo, I would say Remains of the Day and then watch Living. <laughs> yes. And Remains of the Day is a wonderful film from Merchant Ivory from their 90s. It's such a great film. Oh, and a great I didn't realize performance. That there was an adaptation. <laughs> there was with Anthony so double Hopkins. Feature. Yes, okay. with Anthony Hopkins. Um, yeah, it's 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 one of those mid-90s or early 90s movies. It's, it's really great. Um, and, you know, we are recording this a couple of days before the Oscar nominations. I think if there is a movie that might factor into next year's Oscars, it will be living um, for this wonderful performance by Bill Nye. I think um, it was um, it was already bought for distribution for a company that knows how to do Oscar movies. They just won an Oscar for Anthony Hopkins for The Father last year. Um, so I think with the right handling, Bill Nye could be among the Oscar nominees next year. Absolutely. I really love that too. Um, and you briefly mentioned the Jesse Eisenberg movie, When You Finish Saving the World, which has also the guy from Stranger, what's the show? I can't, I don't know. It's Stranger the something. The show Stranger Things. Stranger Things. <laughs> and that, his name is Finn. <laughs> Finn Wolfhard. I just Googled it. Finn Wolfhard. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, he's the son and the mom is Julianne Moore. Um, one thing, I thought that movie sort of showed promise, but one thing, I, it's about two very unlikable characters, like both yes. the mother and the son sort of are maybe emotional parasites. They, they don't know this, but they sort of cling to people and want to basically take all the good stuff from them. That's, that's my, my, oh, my impression 100%. of that. <laughs> yeah, and not even the good stuff. They want to take their traumas from them. <laughs> yes, totally. So I have pretty... I think strong feelings about this film because I really enjoyed it because it was two super unlikable characters. And the way that I had interpreted it was you have very privileged white characters, a white mom and a white son. And in their own respective ways, they feel really misunderstood by the world. So they're trying to fill this gap in their hearts by taking traumas from people of color. And so the son, he's he thinks he has, or he does have this huge crush on a woman of color who is very political and he wants to understand her, but he just can't, he doesn't. And the mother, she um, is mentoring. Um, she runs a nonprofit and is mentoring this 
a young man who is also someone of color and she's pushing him and pushing him to go to university. And he ultimately doesn't want to, which really upsets her, even though Mm -hmm. this isn't, you know, it shouldn't be about her. And what I loved about it was I felt like the film was, um, it kept them unlikable. And at the end, it was like, they found each other. And it was just about these two terrible white people (laughs) who will never understand that they're terrible. And I kind of liked the nihilism of that because Mm -hmm. they're like, oh, well, you know, we're great. We love each other. And they never understood what they did wrong. Yeah. And I actually liked that. And then I feel like I went online because I was curious what people's reactions were. And a lot of people felt like the film was trying to redeem them. And it just Mm -hmm. wasn't how I interpreted it. So I'm curious what you felt. Um, I didn't think the film tried to redeem them at all. I think what I liked a lot about this film is that it was bold enough to make these two very unlikable people the protagonists and then didn't shy away from, from, from putting them at the center of the story and showing us all of their ugly edges. Um, and the performances were were both okay. I think Julianne Moore obviously is much better at this than the younger guy. Um, But what I sort of found it a bit lacking about the film is that once the setup was introduced and they introduced these characters and sort of the other people in their orbit and they started the narrative, it was just everything that happened after that was expected and obvious. Like, of course, they're going to try to leech off these other people. And of course, it's not going to go well and it might end this way. Um, Maybe people you know, spoilers, this movie will be out sometime. This is a a mild spoiler. So if you don't want to know, just fast forward um, 30 seconds. Maybe to the point that you were making about, maybe some people thought they were trying to redeem them is that the movie sort of ends on a point of reconnection or sort of understanding between them. Yeah, I I liked it because I I felt like, um, I liked the... It, to me, it felt nihilistic where it was like, well, they'll never learn. And I actually kind of liked that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was like, yes, there is a huge faction of the world that will never learn. And they will think that they're good people and they will talk to each other, mm-hmm. but not to others. Yeah. And I thought that was a reflection of reality. <laughs> yeah, I, I, do, I do think there's something to be said for the fact that why is it these types of characters that are centered over and over again? So and I'm happy to kind of understand that argument for sure. Um, but also thinking that it's Jesse Eisenberg who made this, I wouldn't like, that's fine to me. I feel like he doesn't for his feature film debut, he doesn't need to make some super hard hitting thing about people of color and race and make these really deep thoughts, you know, like this felt yeah. sort of closer to his body of work that already exists. And mm-hmm. again, considering it's his first time feature debut, I thought that as a director, um, I thought it was it was great. It was really um, kind of a neat package for me. I agree. I think I want to see more from Jesse Eisenberg. Um, and another director that I really want to see more from is Jamie Dack, who directed Palm Trees and Power Lines, which is, I thought, a very confident feature filmmaking debut um, that dealt sensitively with a taboo subject. Um, it's about sex grooming. It's about this young... Um, woman and she's a teenager i think she's 16 or 17 she's in high school who meets this older man um she has problems at home she's not connecting with her friends and of course he takes advantage of that um and grooms her for sex work 
it's sort of um, a story that didn't shy away from presenting this man as very charming, which he would have to be to be able to get through to this woman. And it's, if you saw from Sundance two years ago, um, never really, sometimes always the Eliza Hitman movie. This is kind of in that realm is that it's very unadorned, naturalistic, you know, there's no um, big Hollywood lights or costumes or any fancy camera moves. It's just observing these actors in this small, intimate story. And I think, and I really like that film. It's, it was kind of hard to watch once you realize where it's going and it doesn't shy away from everything. In fact, I would think its ending is a huge downer. Don't think this girl is going to run away. She does not. Sorry to spoil it. But um, I thought it's the story that they wanted to tell. And it showed confidence to choose this as a first feature film. Yeah, um, I did not watch this one because when I read the synopsis, I was like, I, I don't think I can watch this. Yes, I was texting with a few friends and a lot of a couple of them were like, ah, I don't want to see this, no matter how good the filmmaking is. Right. <laughs> yeah, I can I can see that. Yes. So thank you for watching it and explaining it to us, Mercada. <laughs> so Lee, is there another filmmaker that you want to see more from? You know, we'll talk about Am I Okay, Tig Notaro and Stephanie Aline. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was a first time feature for the two of them, especially Tig Notaro is, I think is the big name, right? Yeah. And it was also why the film interested me and why I clicked in. Um, and I thought that it felt like a first time feature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it was, I enjoyed it. I think possibly more than you did. <laughs> yeah. So Am I Okay is the other Dakota Johnson movie. And it's about yes. this woman who is I think in her early 30s who right. comes out or decides to tell her well, best she's trying friend. to figure out mm-hmm. her sexuality still yes and it's mainly about her relationship with her best friend right yeah I would say that's the emotional core of it there are some a couple of romances that happen but it's mostly um, a platonic one between mm-hmm. her and her best friend so before I, I sort of like, this was one of the movies I actively hated. I didn't actively hate a lot of movies, but this was definitely one of them. So before I go all nuclear <laughs> negative on this movie, why don't you tell Cliffhanger. <laughs> Cliffhanger. What you liked about it first. Okay, I'll go through it fast because I want to know your answer. <laughs> the, for me, this fell into that pocket of being gentle and likable. Yeah. It, it wasn't super memorable for me, but, mm-hmm. um, but if it's like the, uh, on the outskirts of the Ted Lasso effect where it's not a super strong movie, but you know, had a kind heart. Yeah. <laughs> it was also about estrangement, not between family, although you can definitely count friends as family, yeah. but it's about people who start off and there's, um, you know, there's this moment where they, um, don't understand each other. And the entire film is about them finding their way back to each other. So there was a lot of that type of emotional story arc at Sundance this year. And it was, yeah, it was gentle. It was queer. So I am mm-hmm. always down for watching queer films. And I thought this um, was just exciting to see Tig Notaro get behind the camera because she's so enjoyable in front of it. And I just, by virtue of who she is and how, how important she is to the queer and lesbian community, I just want to see more from her. Yeah. So now tell us why you hated it. <laughs> I just didn't believe any 
of it. I just, um, I think I was texting I with, that. <laughs> with my friend Chris and he was like, are these real people or are they just aliens? Are they LA aliens? Who are these people? And I totally agree with him. I didn't believe none of the stories. Dakota Johnson is supposed to be a painter, but she works at a massage parlor and she's like, she can just leave her job. Like nothing made sense. Yeah. Um, and even like things like when she goes to a, um, a lesbian bar and the, you we all know what Dakota Johnson looks like she is going to be surrounded by women and right. that and that doesn't happen and I'm just like what is going on and I think I hated it so much that I think the only reason this movie exists is that Tignataro has like clout in Hollywood and somebody gave her money to make a movie and she made a movie with her wife and they couldn't even come up with a story beyond just navel gazing. Like they couldn't even imagine anything outside of two meters of their surroundings. Like it's a story set in their, mil- I assume a milieu they live in that's alien to me. Um, <laughs> and it's just felt completely unreal, unbelievable. Yeah. yeah and I, I wouldn't disagree with anything you say. <laughs> it's true. It was. Uh, Again, just gentle suspension of disbelief. There was yeah. a lot that didn't make sense, but I it just, um, I don't know if it's because I'm not like super close to the world or what or whatnot, but I just was, I was game, you know, I was like, all right, let me just jump into what their vision is. Oh, she's this gorgeous woman. And just because she's like a teeny bit awkward, suddenly she, you know, hasn't had women all over her mm-hmm. and she's in her thirties. So there were a lot of things that weren't believable. So we talked about the two movies um, that had Dakota Johnson in them. The Another actress who had two movies at Sundance this year was Regina Hall, who was in Master and in Honk for Jesus. But let's talk about Master first. So since we were talking about directors I want to see more, I definitely want to see more from Mariama Diallo, who directed Master. So Regina Hall plays, um, a sort of, they call her Master, but she's sort of um, a higher up at an Ivy League school. She's a professor, and the movie is basically about um, racism in sort of an Ivy League campus somewhere in the Northeast. Um, it may be Harvard, but they don't actually call it Harvard. And, and it's sort of like Nanny. In that milieu, it brings elements of horror to it um, because it's about, it's not just Regina Hall, but there are two other, um, there's another Black professor and a young um women just starting at the school who all face all three of them face really abhorrent racism and that's manifest in the story in sort of horror elements I thought it was um it was an interesting debut and definitely an interesting story and in a milieu that we don't see stories like this for and of course Regina Hall is great and very watchable but again it was one of those things when we talked about at the beginning where I think the idea is there but the execution was not there. Um, I think the director, I want to see more from her, but maybe a more cohesive, coherent narrative. There's a big sort of gotcha surprise at the end that I won't spoil. And I actually sort of talking to friends a a lot didn't like that um, twist at the end, but I actually thought the twist gave the movie a little bit of life. It was all that happened before it and led to that twist that I was just like, what am I watching um, here? But definitely want to see more from Mariama Diallo. 
That's another one of the films that, uh, based on the synopsis, I didn't watch because it's a genre one, along mm-hmm. with things like Alice, where I'm personally just not huge on. I watch a lot of documentaries, but um, but yeah, I was waiting. I was taking a wait and see attitude on what the general consensus was mm-hmm. for um, the films like Master and Alice, um, and they were kind of mixed. So I did not partake. Master is so much better than Alice. Alice is so bad and terrible, and I, I don't even want to talk about it. Um, <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll <laughs> skip it. <laughs> you didn't like I, Fresh either, which I, which I accidentally watched. I didn't know it was going to be horror. Yes, <laughs> I Sebastian Stan's stupid, pretty face, and I put on the movie, and then <laughs> he's very good. Fresh <laughs> is, is good. called by people a satire, although I thought it was very too obvious to be a satire. But it's kind of like about satire. cannibalism, right? <laughs> kind of. It is a thousand percent about cannibalism. Um, oh. I don't know if we need to get into Although I, even though I was watching through my fingers and I had to be texting, um, I was texting Candace Frederick all the way throughout because she loves horror and I was, I was a big baby about it. So she helped me get through the film. But by the end, I still liked it. I did, even though I was so grossed out. <laughs> Um, I think my my main problem with Fresh is that it sort of just telegraphed everything to me. Like, I thought there were stupid lines uh, that sort of told me exactly what I'm supposed to feel. And I just didn't believe it. Like, I think one of the lines um, he says to her at one point, um, we are both, um, hold on, let, let me find the line. I put it on Twitter. That was how much I hated it. So bear with me, <laughs> listeners, as I find as I find this thing on my Twitter, which will just take a second. It'll um, be worth the wait. <laughs> it will it'll definitely be worth the wait because it definitely tells you um, the stuff I didn't like about this movie. I they, they, Daisy Edgar Jones, who plays the lead, um, who people know from Normal People from Hulu last year. Um, I think she's very good. Um, and both she and Sebastian Stan are very good and they make it watchable. This movie is coming out in March. So I think people will be able um, to see it very soon um, in, on Hulu. So it's going to be streaming. Okay. The line is at one point, he's a cannibalism, he's a cannibalist or whatever. And she's trying to, um, you know, tell him she is one too to sort of escape from him. And so he says to her, and I dare you to believe this. You know how I knew you were special? Because you're fucked up too, just like me. I'm like, really? Really? Who wrote this? This screenwriter needs to be, you know, if there is a badge for screenwriting, it needs to be taken away from them. <laughs> Can we have a new show where it's just Murtada throwing shade? Because it's so enjoyable to watch. Oh, <laughs> uh, Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, but people will be listeners. You'll if you haven't been if you weren't at Sundance and you really want to see Daisy Edgar Jones and Sebastian Stan, you will be able to see them very soon. This movie comes out next month, so in just a few weeks. Yeah, falls into that whole um, I guess female director revenge wave that's happening. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I I liked things like Promising Young Woman a lot more personally. Yeah, and a lot of people were sort of comparing it to Promising Young Woman, but it's not. It's not as good, I think. Yeah, it's pretty different. Yeah. So the other movie for Regina Hall was Hong for Jesus, Save Your Soul. I found the full title. Lee. 
Okay. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) Thank you, Google. Yes. So this one, I think we both saw it, right? Yes, I saw that one. So I thought the first half, this is another satire that doesn't work like fresh. I thought the first half was sort of breezily funny, um, even though like the things that it's trying to satire, which is um, organized religion and mega churches in the South, because Regina Hall um, and Sterling K. Brown play this couple who run a mega church, I think in Atlanta. Um, and there's a scandal and the film is sort of a, uh, the the premise of it is that a filmmaker is filming them in the few weeks to run up to the reopening of their church. They are attempting to rebuild their congregation. Um, and I thought the satire was not as sharp or clever as it thinks it is. And then it just halfway through, it goes completely off the rail and it becomes something, I don't know, they spend half the movie in a street in Atlanta um, and poor Regina Hall, who is an actor I love and I think she's so amazing, has to give this monologue in clown makeup. I'm like, what is going on with this movie? Yeah, it definitely takes a hard turn <laughs> when when she comes out and she's in uh, white, yeah, white makeup with black lips and eyes. And it's, it's very odd. Um, so I do feel like I should mention that the directors, Adama and Adana Ibu, who are twins, um, they had based this feature length film on a short film that they had made. And I read an interview in Variety where the whole premise was this mime scene because apparently it is a real trend and I'm not the right person to speak to it because I'm an atheist. So <laughs> I don't know Me much too. about, about <laughs> um, you know, Christian mimes, but apparently it was a trend. <laughs> so I'll take their word for it. And it's certainly interesting material uh, that they have surfaced and now I'm aware of it. I don't know how much I needed to know about it, but um <laughs> uh, I like that they started off with that as the nugget and I'm disappointed that it didn't work because it is a very strange, um, you know, stranger than fiction Mm -hmm. premise that you do have this entire trend of, of people who are Christian and they do mining routines. So anyways, you guys can look it up because I can't tell you much more than what I saw in honk for Jesus, except that I agree. And I was disappointed that I felt like it wasn't, quite contextualized enough for people who aren't already aware of this um, phenomenon. (laughs) Yes. um, And it just felt very, it came too late in a very long film. I liked what it was trying to do with the satire, but considering that it was originally a short film, I feel like the the correct platform for this would have been a short film. Because the joke just kept going and going for, you know, however long this movie was 90 minutes and it would have been funny for 10 minutes or 15, but it really dragged for me. Yeah. Um, I was going to say this movie is worth it for Regina Hall, but I'm not even sure it is. Um, maybe we should dig up the original film, the short film. <laughs> maybe. But if you like Sterling K. Brown, he's shirtless a lot and he looks amazing. So that's that's, that's one thing it has going for it. <laughs> it does. I mean, I think that's what they, they both were... Um, the reason to watch the film and it's why I watched it because I love Regina Hall and I always yes. want her to get you know um leading roles and deeper roles and nuanced ones and I was so sad that this was not that yeah absolutely like I was hoping when I read the 
that she's in two movies that this will be the Sundance of Regina Hall, but it really wasn't. Yeah, um, I keep I keep waiting for just those like you know those movies that are really going to showcase her in a in a great way. Yeah. Uh, next one. There is always next time. Yes. Um, but another actress who has the last name Hall actually was pretty amazing. That's Rebecca Hall in Resurrection. Have you seen this one, Lee? No, I haven't. So this is, again, another genre, sort of horror movie. Briefly, I'll just say this. I don't even going to go into the plot of this movie. I'll just tell you Rebecca Hall is amazing. This movie is a trip. It really goes to some outlandish and unbelievable places that in a less in lesser hands, I think the director is somebody to watch um, because this premise could have been ludicrous, but he sets it up so well that you believe it. Um, his name is Andrew Siemens. You believe all the strange, outlandish, crazy things that happen in this trippy movie. And I think you believe it because it's just so grounded by Rebecca Hall's just wonderful performance. Like if I was giving an acting award, I would give it to Rebecca Hall. She was really wonderful in this film. Um, but I think another movie we agree on had wonderful acting is Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, with Emma Thompson and Daryl McCormack. Um, and it's a movie that we both liked. Yeah, it was just really, really well done. Um, the director, Sophie Hyde. Um, I'm not sure if this... No, she's been around um, for a while. Yeah, she's, she's had a movie at Sundance maybe three or four years ago called Animals, yes. Yeah, but it was, you could tell that this was like just a very steady hand. It was a simple premise. It almost feels theatrical, like it was a stage play mm -hmm. um, because it all takes place in maybe one or two different sets. And the entire thing is just, I, I personally love films that are just based on dialogue and mm -hmm. conversations with two people who... Um, are from different worlds in this case. Emma Thompson is a much older woman who is whose husband had died and she feels a lot of shame around sexuality, mm -hmm. but eventually decides to hire a sex worker to help. And he helps break her out of that shell through a series of a lot of just conversations. It's not a very graphic film at all. Mm -hmm. It's pretty above board. Um, but I think that was, might have been a result of shooting during COVID, that it's just in sort of two actors in one yeah. location or two locations, yeah. but it works in this movie. It yeah, definitely absolutely. Works. Yeah, it didn't feel like a pandemic film to me. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of it works because Emma Thompson is just wonderful. Like oh, what I yeah. thought about this <laughs> film, I yes, we're watching Emma Thompson playing this new character with, that we've never met before, but this is kind of why I personally love and need movie stars is because I you know, we build this relationship over time with them and we cherish it. And, and Thompson is a great actress, but she's also somebody we have a connection to um, that we've seen her in so many roles. So when she comes in, in in this movie and has a scene where it's just her in medium shot telling you about a sexual memory for her from her past when she gets this jolt, and everything is telegraphed on your face. You can't help but be moved, not just because she's giving a gr great performance in this, but because we are bringing our own memories and admiration of her that we have uh, developed over all these years of watching her in so many other amazing films. I love that you mentioned that because that's not something I had thought about at all, but it's absolutely true. Um, 
even just earlier when I, like, I can't even say the name Emma Thompson without some kind of wistful or, you mm. know, happy sigh attached to it. Cause I do love her work and I will, you know, I'll watch anything that she's in and you're totally right. I bet it, it is the fact that I'm bringing a lot of my own self into seeing her performance. Cause it's so simple, but mm-hmm. she, um, yeah, she really blows it out of the water and Daryl McCormack totally keeps up. I mean, he does a really good job too. Yeah. And I haven't seen him in anything before and he does, he goes toast to, to toe with her. Wonderful. I don't think it's a debut, but I think it's his first big break and he has a big future ahead of him. Yeah. And I'm always down for a, a sort of feminist sex positive movie. So I, yes. yeah, I, I certainly get very sick of watching older men with younger women in Hollywood mm-hmm. and in films. And it's just nice for one, this one movie to have the tables turned. <laughs> Yes. I have a bone to pick with somebody in this movie, though, with the costume designer. Like, oh. Daryl McCormack plays a sex worker, and they put him in these ugly baggy pants and big shirts. <laughs> Nothing is streamlined. Very unpleasing characters. Like, we should be thinking of sex when we see him, not thinking like he's 90s. some yeah, nondescript college nerd. I'm like, what is these costumes he's in? What about later at the end when they take him out of his like funny gigolo clothes and then he like gets to just be in sports clothes? Was too, like, late. Was too, too late. Too late. <laughs> <laughs> that damage has already been done. <laughs> I didn't even think about that, but but maybe because he spent so much of it shirtless. So I wasn't really looking at like big lapels. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I don't know. I don't, you know, um, anyway, but that's a minor blip. This is. <laughs> sort of such a charming movie that um, I think it's going to be on Hulu too sometime later this year. So people will get a chance to see Emma Thompson be wonderful. Yeah, they definitely should. It's such a good one. Yes. So is there anything that we kind of talked about Fresh and Hong for Jesus, which are two movies that we were both kind of not in too much? Is there, and I definitely hate Am I Okay. Is there anything that just completely turned you off, Lee, that you saw? Um, so I was very disappointed by one film called Leonore Will Never Die. Um, and this is just me because it has very high reviews. <laughs> it even won but, one of the awards. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> y'all should watch it <laughs> for me personally. <laughs> um, I, I tend to, I think I tend to like pretty audience friendly movies. Um, I'm not super, super experimental or adventurous. <laughs> and Leonore Will Never Die, which is a film that's directed by Martika Ramirez Escobar, who's Filipina. So uh, this is the definition of experimental. Um, It's genre bending. It kind of has different multiple universes. It's about an older woman who is in a coma and she has all of these, um, I guess, visions or she's in a dream state about, I mean, anyways, I can't even describe it. It's super uh meta. (laughs) It's so meta and I am sad that I couldn't enjoy it because clearly there's something here. I always want to be championing um, Asian American films Mm -hmm. and um, especially by women. And I just could not, I could not get behind this one. It was way too weird for me. (laughs) Yeah. The one that was really weird for me was called Speak No Evil, which is a Danish film um, and it's a horror film. And I was in a couple of, um, WhatsApp groups and both my WhatsApp groups of critics wanted to watch, were like 
um, recommending this film. So I watched it. And it's about sort of like two families who visit each other. They, they meet in Italy on vacation and then one family invites the other. It's a couple. Each family is a couple and a young child. They invite the other to come visit them at their summer home. And the log line says what was supposed to be an idyllic weekend slowly starts unraveling as, as the couple try to stay polite in the face of unpleasantness. And it's basically, that's it. It's about how you you say yes to things just out of being polite. But here it escalates and it it escalates and it escalates and it leads to all kinds of horrible things and deaths and abduction and all kinds of terrible things. And I was just like, it is really well made. Like it's absolutely strong filmmaking, but there were a couple of scenes that I just didn't want to watch. And I'm like, why do people put themselves through this? But this is me. If you're a fan of horror, you would love this film. And it is definitely better than fresh or master or the other horror movies. So if you're into horror, I think it's the one to watch. (laughs) (laughs) Did you want to talk about documentaries at all? Yes, let's talk about documentaries. Um, I saw a lot of documentaries actually. Um, And usually at sometimes the documentaries are much better than the narrative films. And I think this in this year, that trend continues. What have you liked from documentaries? Um, So I really liked... Um, two two documentaries in particular. So there's one called Brainwashed Sex Camera Power and um, by Nina Menkes. And that one is, uh, it feels like you're sitting in film school and you're watching the deconstruction of mm-hmm. technical camera techniques that um, that are, it really just lays out why film is really sexist and has the male gaze. It talks us through what the male gaze is and all of the cool kind of like camera angles and um and you know who's making eye contact it just it's very very technical and i loved that it just felt like a um a dissection of of camera techniques that that all add up <clears throat> into something that is um really damaging if you're watching it as a viewer over years and years and years and hundreds mm-hmm. and hundreds of Hollywood films, because they all use this type of sexist camera lens. Mm-hmm. Um, so I loved watching it. And then the other documentary that I, um, I like that too, before you move on to your, your other doc, I really like that one too. And I, um, I felt it was like, um, like a lecture at film school, but in a good way. Yeah, so. it definitely was. I mean, it's literally like the framing is she's giving a TED talk. Yes, <laughs> literally yeah. a lecture. <laughs> yeah, so if you love movies, I think this is um, unmissable because it will definitely open your eyes like it did mine. Yeah, and there a lot of it are things that I was already familiar with being involved in sort of um, in this type of work. But I, I feel like just having it reinforced and having it all aggregated into one documentary about all the different techniques being used, mm-hmm. um, it was just really enjo- like it's I wouldn't even say enjoyable. It's sort of a hard watch because you are watching a lot, a lot of footage that is extremely sexist. And it it was sort of a difficult watch for me, but at the same time, just so, um, so interesting that I was able to kind of um, separate the narratives that I was watching play out on screen, which are disturbing. And there's, um, you know, talks about things like pedophilia, even where you have like Lolita and films like Mm -hmm. that. And it just goes through a lot of damaging narrative tropes that exist in Hollywood. So it's hard, but 
really, really interesting and important, I think, especially maybe for um, for men to watch, probably, because <laughs> I yes. think women already kind of feel all of this under the surface. We don't necessarily need someone to tell us how it's happening, <laughs> but it yeah. might be surprising for some men to watch. I don't know. Yeah, it was surprising for me. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. What was the other one you liked? Um, I liked Free Cholsuli. So that one is about the Korean American who was wrongfully imprisoned for several, several years and just goes through his life. And I I think this one was more personal for me because I did grow up in the Bay area where this took place um, in the, I think the seventies and it's such a huge, um, huge milestone in Asian American activism in the Bay area. And I was kind of uh, disappointed in myself that I had never heard of it before. I was like, I can't believe that all of this happened. This was a huge wave of um, even international Asian American activism where a lot of people rallied behind mm-hmm. this, this guy who was very clearly wrongfully imprisoned, but obviously, you know, all of the white juries don't care. <laughs> they just yeah. wanted a scapegoat. And for them, any Asian American was, you know, was fine. It was, they, they feel that they're all interchangeable. So it was important for me to watch it, given that I should already know this, <laughs> this history. Um, so I, I, and I also just felt like it was really, um, it was really well done. Yeah. I missed that one, but hopefully it will, it will come somewhere pretty mm-hmm. soon. Did you watch the James? The James. Well, I watched Call Jane, the fictional film. Yeah. Um, so there were two movies. There were The Janes and Cold Jane. The Janes is a documentary, which I thought was better than the fictional one, but they're both about sort of like the Jane group, which is women in Chicago in the late 60s who performed um, illegal abortions at the time. Um, mm-hmm. I thought The Janes was, um, it's, it's an HBO documentary, so there is no reinventing the medium. There is nothing fancy about it. It's just um, interviewing these women and talking to them and they're, they're telling their stories. And that's all you need. I thought they were all amazing heroes and their stories were compelling. I thought it was much better than the fictionalization uh, done by Phyllis Nowge in Cold Jane. But what did you think of Cold Jane, Lee? So Cold Jane, I felt like falls into that bucket of high production level films for me, where it was just really easy viewing. Yes, it's about abortion, which is a very timely issue, but it wasn't really it wasn't really saying anything new. There is a black character. And every time I'm watching these um, 1970s feminist films mm-hmm. or things set during this era, I'm always watching for how they're treating the black characters mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, they do. An, yeah. And they do an okay job, but she is still tokenized. And yep. so there's nothing that felt particularly gripping. I mean, I think all it was saying is like, patriarchy is bad. Feminism is good. And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it, true. <laughs> Yeah, this is kind of, I think, a case for me where I watched it first and I was like, kind of ho-hum on it. I'm like, this one is fine. And then I watched the documentary and just the real women were so much more compelling. And I'm like, why are you trying to fictionalize it when the stories of the real women are so much more interesting? There is even a Black woman um, in the, and you know, the Jane movement was mostly white women, but there is, Mm -hmm. there were a few Black members and one of them is in the documentary and she she had these 
stories about her being in college and how she was radicalized and how she refused to join the Black Panthers, even though they were politically her group. And there were all these things that were so much more interesting than Elizabeth Banks being a rich Republican wife trying yeah. to get an abortion, which is just like most of, you know, I was talking to my friend Ren Gender and she was like, most of the women in Cold Jane were not rich Republican housewives. They were young radicals. They were, you know, young right. women in college and, you know, who were active, not just in abortion, but in just the movement of the 60s. And that is completely absent from the movies. Right. Thought, why? Oh, that's frustrating. Because, yeah, I hadn't watched the documentary. But I, I think because this happens over and over again in Hollywood, you can just kind of feel that under the surface of the fictional film called Jane. Mm-hmm. Because it is, again, why are we always centering the same types of, you know, like rich Republican housewife, blonde, beautiful, you know, it's like, oh, mm-hmm. and this is the entry point that Hollywood feels like they need to fund so that people will watch the movie. But I, I, I think because I, um, this is why I like documentaries so much in general mm-hmm. is that that's where the most interesting stories are. Um, so I'll try to make sure I watch the the documentary version of this when when it comes out. I feel very disappointed in this movie because it's directed by Phyllis Notch, who of course wrote Carol, one of my favorite movies oh, of all time. Yeah. Both the Janes and Cole Jane have distribution. Cole Jane uh, was just bought by Roadside Attraction and I think they're releasing it in the fall. It has Sigourney Weaver and Elizabeth Banks. So I think to your point and the high production values, it's going to be a big full movie, you know, big mm-hmm. for this kind of story. Um, and The Janes is going to be on HBO. I don't know when, but it's it's came to the festival as an HBO film. So it's going to be on HBO sometime soon. So Lee, I want to end up with one movie that I really, really loved. I think at the end, this might be my favorite movie at Sundance. Um, it's Fire of Love. It's a documentary directed by Sarah Dosa about two volcanologists, a French volcanologist, Katia and Morris Kraft. Um, And this movie just, it's going to be a National Geographic. Just go watch it. It's about this couple who um, basically follow volcanoes and love volcanoes. And they're sort of disinterested in, in human beings and really interested in volcanoes. The movie looks amazing and it's gorgeous. And um, we watched this movie like late at night and then I went to bed and I had the best dreams. They were all full of volcanoes and red colors and beautiful. It was maybe the best dreams I had all year. So I think this is why I love Fire of Love. And uh, I hope everybody gets to see it and have vivid dreams after, after you watch it. <laughs> certainly, that's, that's a good reason to watch a movie for sure. Just to put on the TV and it's beautiful and you could just coast. <laughs> yes. Um, actually, I want to circle back a little bit. So there was something I feel like maybe we should talk about that I didn't talk about too much yet is the, um, you know, I think because of my work at Mediaversity, where I'm specifically looking at films and trying to consider how inclusive they are. So one entire vertical that we hadn't talked too much about was Latino films. Mm-hmm. I feel like they had a really good Sundance. I think an Asian American film, I did not really, other than After Young, which still kind of centers non, non-Asian characters. I mean, there's yep. some in there. And it's a very Asian film, so I'm not going to say it's not. But other than uh, After Young, I was a little let down by Asian American films um, and Black films as well, which I had w- tried to watch a bunch. 892 was one I saw, and there's, you know, there's a reason why we just haven't really talked about it. It's not super 
memorable. <laughs> it's not. Absolutely. You nailed it. It's just was like, yeah. okay, it's not bad, but it's just not memorable. Right. But I do want to highlight that I felt like Latino films had a pretty good year. Um, my personal favorite was Mars One, which is Afro-Latina, so, or it's Afro-Brazilian. Mm. Um, and we don't need to get into it, but I just want to touch on the fact that I thought that was a really good, another family drama about an estranged family and they come together by the end. Um, and I thought queer films are what I've been noticing more and more at film festivals. And you tell me if you feel this way too, is that we're not really getting big splash banner queer films, but it's getting worked into a lot of narratives. Mm -hmm. So, um, Mars one, as I mentioned, is another one that has queer characters, even call Jane that we had just talked about with Phyllis Nage. That's, it's not queer on screen, although you have queer characters, but she herself is a, I think she's a lesbian, right? Yes, she's, so, she's, she's queer. Yeah, so I do kind of find that, I personally find it sort of encouraging that it's become very, very normalized. There's so many films where it's just, you have some characters, they might be main characters even. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I feel like Latino films with La Guerra um, Civil was also um, Eva Longoria's documentary about boxing. Um, mm -hmm. That was pretty well done. I don't know. Did you, did you see any, there was that tequila factory one. <laughs> I, I, I saw the tequila factory one, which is yeah. Dos Esquetiones by Juan Pablo Gonzalez. And it was really good. And it had a compelling sort of main character at the center of it, but you agree it was a little slow. Yeah, it definitely was slow and <laughs> not, and not in the, for me personally, cause like slow is so you know, subjective, mm -hmm. but it was um, slow, not great for me. <laughs> um, but, but again, like, I think I, I'm threading through again, there's another queer main character and it's just for me mm -hmm. cool to see it being very normalized, yes. but um, I'm not sure how you feel about like the state of queer film and film festivals lately. I mean, the point you make about that queer narratives are sort of integrated into other narratives is a good point. But I have to say, before the festival started, I was looking at just queer stories or queer filmmakers, and I didn't find a lot. Like, even talking to uh, my queer friends, and, you know, I programmed for New Fest, which is New York's um, queer film festival. And I was talking to the other programmers and we were all trying to discover queer movies and we didn't find a lot. So yeah, um, there wasn't a lot of this Sundance. I right. Think. Maybe just Am I Okay, which we know you adored. Your yes, favorite. My favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like it's kind of going underground a little bit, even at um, TIFF uh, last year when I was having conversations about this with friends, it was like, yeah, it's all underground. You have characters, but you know, the power of the dog is obviously a really big movie and it has queer overtones. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, I don't know. I'm not really getting those like big killer headlines that are like, this is the queer film. So yeah, there is not, but I'm happy to see the, you know, queer filmmakers like Phyllis Nodge get a big, yeah. this is obviously a big movie with, you know, I know, you know, a more than average budget. I don't think it's a big budget by any means, but it is a movie mm -hmm. that has, you know, it's it's a period film and looking at the sets and the costumes, it's obviously cost a penny. So that's yeah. that's a positive. Yeah, definitely. So it's just interesting to track how these trends are going over time. So I, I do think, even though I'm not the expert to speak on the subject, but I do think Latino films had a great year at Sundance. Even like um, Utama is a film that by Alejandro Loaiza Grisi, which won an award. So I didn't 
get a chance to watch that one. But. Yeah, I did too. And that's from, I think, is it Bolivia? I believe. Yes. Yeah, Bolivian indigenous couple in Bolivia. So, yeah. um, so there's a lot of, I still have to catch up on, but um, it's just yes. fun to look at how, you know, what the trends are in terms of the diversity lens that I'm always viewing things through. Yeah. Um, Yes, it's good. To I mean, Sundance tries to be inclusive and I think they succeed for the most part. We've seen movies like just the ones we talked about, like from different parts of the world, different narratives, you know, a lot of movies by female filmmakers and narrative centering women, um, narrative centering black people. But back to uh, the point that we started with is that maybe just this year, but I think the selection was just okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I will say, I was really surprised that there weren't um, East Asian foreign films, which, you know, like maybe that's fine. There's usually so many Chinese, Japanese, Taiwanese films, Korean films that are happening. So maybe Sundance can take a year off, you know. <laughs> well, Lee, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for co- coming on the podcast to talk to me about Sundance and all the movies that you watched. Um, and before you go, please let our listeners know where they can find you and your work. Sure. Um, so I'd mentioned it a couple of times, but the website that I have is called Mediaversity Reviews. And what we do is we score movies and TV shows based on how inclusive they are. Murtada has contributed quite a few reviews and I'm always trying to get him to do more. Yes. <laughs> um, <but> Hopefully soon. <laughs> <laughs> I would love it. I'll always love it. And then you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at the same handle, which is at Mediaversity Rev R E V. So you can follow my work there. Thank you, Lee. And you can follow me on Twitter at M E underscore says. And thank you so much for listening to this bonus episode. And we'll be back to regular programming next Sunday. Bye.